Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. And one of the great challenges or puzzles is how can someone come that God has promised and when he comes, all he does is heal and restore and yet at the end you end up crucifying him and it's your own people, the ones who are expecting him to come who ended up doing that. What is that about? One of the things that the Gospel of Mark does is to draw together five stories from the life of Jesus that summed up how the Saviour of the world who did nothing but heal, uh, help and restore could end up on a cross. Um, He seeks to explain that sequence of events by putting together in Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3 five stories. The first story is the story of the man who was paralyzed and carried into a house where the friends dug a hole through the roof and lowered him down. Um, The scribes and the Pharisees had come up from Jerusalem and they'd gathered from everywhere because they were trying to figure out who are we dealing with here? what What are we dealing with in Jesus? And as that man is lowered down, Jesus makes for them a very bad mistake. He says to the man, your sins are forgiven you, and immediately they say, well, that's strike one, because only God can forgive sins. They're trying to figure out, is he the real deal, or is he someone to be opposed? Jesus knew their thoughts and said, well, let me me ask you a question. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, or arise, take up your bed and walk, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on he- in, in heaven and in earth to forgive sins. Get up, go home. He got up and he went home, yeah. and now they're really upset. Now comes strike two. Strike two, Jesus is doing some ministry along the Sea of Galilee, and right there in Capernaum, there was a tax collector's office. And as he walked past the tax collector's office, he invited a young man by the name of Levi to get out of the tax booth and join him on his ministry team. And later that night, uh, Levi put on a big party in his house and got all his tax-collecting friends to come and gather around and talk theology with Jesus and his disciples. And during that party, there's a knock on the door. They open the door and here are the scribes and the Pharisees And they have a question. If you claim to be the representative of a holy God, how come you're in here with these people talking about holy things? Now, the short answer in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus simply said, well, tell me this. If you had sick people, where would you send the doctor? No much point sending the doctor to healthy people you send the doctor to sick people and that was the summary of what Jesus had to say about why he called a tax collector into onto his ministry team and you've got to realize I guess you could understand I mean maybe you and I when we hear that story we don't feel the tension that a Jewish person would feel in the first century because I mean tax collectors to you and I are just part of the administration of life I mean if you're here today and you're from the taxation department may the Lord bless you and keep you it's lovely it's lovely to have you with us today why would it be so offensive to to invite a tax collector to be part of your ministry team 
Well, tax collectors were not just part of the administration in Jesus' day. They were Jewish people who had signed up with the Romans to tax their own people. And of course, um, the way the Romans did taxation was rather than trying to set up uh, a worldwide network of taxation, they would sell the rights to tax the locals to local businessmen. A bit like buying a McDonald's franchise. And so you could buy the right to be a tax collector from the Romans and because the tax collecting laws were kind of pretty, they were pretty loose, you could tax people out of existence. You were a fifth columnist. You were someone who was now signing up with the enemy to line your own pockets at, your lo at the local people's expense. I mean, if the youth pastor here decided one day to bring a drug dealer on the uh, youth ministry team because they were so good at meeting kids at the local primary school, you can imagine there would be a few people asking questions. What are we doing with this person on our ministry team? And that's exactly what happened with Levi. What are you doing with, uh, with this guy on your ministry team? Well, the short answer was because that's where you send a doctor to the sick people. But if you want to see the full answer, the, the extended answer, you have to come up to Luke chapter 15 because this is where Jesus really unpacked what he had to say to those people about their misunderstanding of God's heart. In Luke 15, the Bible says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. And now Jesus has to correct a misunderstanding. Because what Jesus now needs to say to us, you don't really understand God very well, do you? Even though you are a nation that was established by God to reveal the heart of God to the rest of the world, you don't even understand who you're representing. You're upset because I'm reaching out to lost people. Well, that's because you don't understand God's passion. So now he tells three parables in Luke 15, which is an extended answer to what he had to say in Mark chapter 2. The first uh, parable Jesus said is, let, let me ask you a question. What if you were a shepherd and you had 100 sheep and only 99 came home? Well, if I was a shepherd and I had 100 sheep and only 99 came home, I know what I'd do. I'd say, well, that's pretty good. 99 out of 100 is not bad. Uh, got most of them home. You, lose, you, you win some, you lose some. But De Jesus said that's because you don't understand the value of a single life. You don't understand it. And as a result, if you were a shepherd, you might just shut up the, the, the flock, you know, turn on the TV, have a shepherd's pie for dinner. <laughs> but if you understood the heart of God, he couldn't bear the thought that one of his was lost. So he'd do what we wouldn't expect to do. He would leave the 99. No, no, don't leave them. That's most of what you've got. No, you don't understand uh, one of them is lost and you don't know what lost means you don't know what lost means that that life is hanging over eternity by a thread and if that heart stops beating tonight they'll be lost in the darkness you couldn't understand the depth of it and so if you were a shepherd like God and you had 9900 you'd leave the 99 fat found ones to look after themselves make small groups someone leads some singing because I'm out of here the really serious issue is someone's lost and I'm going to go out and get them and then Jesus said surprise 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 when he finds it he carries it home 
calls his friends and neighbors together and said, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. Because he said, Jesus said, I'll tell you something that will really surprise you. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Do you know that if one person came to Jesus this morning, that he'd be more excited about that than over all of us who did of our singing and our giving and all of our stuff here this morning because he knows we're safe and we're found. And so I know this is a big shock. We are not his highest priority. Hang on. What do you mean we're not his highest priority? We love him. Who's putting the money in the plate? Who's making this place work? Why aren't we his highest priority? Because you're safe and you're found. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you die tonight and get promoted early. That's about as bad as it can get. <laughs> Nothing can separate you from the grace of God. Yeah. Lost people. See, lost, lost people matter to God more than we can fully understand. Well, Jesus said, let me tell you another story. Imagine a woman had 10 coins and she lost one of them. Now, it's interesting to note that Jesus never uses a woman as a bad example once in a parable because he knew women had a hard enough time of life with cranky men. <laughs> and as a result, he would never use a woman as a bad example. But he said, imagine a woman had 10 coins and she lost one in a house. Now, one of the other reasons Jesus has to use a woman because Jesus knew that if he had a parable where a man lost something in a house and then found it, well, no one's going to believe that. I mean, <laughs> men, men can't find anything in a house. Uh, every now and then, I call out to Helen, I can't find my socks. And I hear a voice from another room, if I have to come in there, <laughs> oh, it's all right, I'll have another look. I just had a boy look. Because you see, Jesus knew that if a woman lost something in a house and she wanted to find it, she'd come up with a strategy. Men just go walk around and say, I can't see it, I, I just can't see it. And often she'll say to me, have you thought of moving something? <laughs> oh, no, I never thought about that. Well, Jesus said, if you put a woman in charge, she'd come up with a strategy, you see. And, and Jesus said what she'd do is she'd say, you know, if I move the chairs and the tables and I take my broom and I light a lamp, if I start in that corner and I clean everything to the other side, by the time I get to the other side of that room, I will have found my lost coin, put a woman in charge, she'll come up with a strategy. But Jesus went on to say this, when she finds that lost coin, he said, she'll say, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin in the same way, I tell you, there's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus was saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you don't understand God's heart. You don't understand it. You think God's just about preserving found people. No, it's not his highest priority. His highest priority is finding lost people. And you know, all over, all over Australia today, there are churches who don't have a single strategy for finding lost people. And this morning, I'm talking in a church that has a strategy. There's a dream at work in this church. It was birthed over nine years ago. There is a dream, a strategy for finding lost people. You need to know how precious that is because not every church, many churches in Australia today are gathering and they are doing the worship, but they have no strategy for finding lost people. 
and you need to know it's uh, God's highest priority. It's the thing he's most excited about. I believe with all my heart God is excited about a strategy in this house designed to find lost people in Shell Harbour and bring them home. But then Jesus said, I'll give you another one. You want another story? Let me, let me tell you about a, about a father who had two sons. Both of them were lost. One of them was lost in the house. One of them ends up getting lost outside the house. And one of the boys comes to his dad one day and says, Dad, are you feeling well? Because I was hoping you might be fairly sick and you might die fairly soon because I'm really interested in getting my inheritance. Well, that's not what Jesus said. He, he said to his father, give me my inheritance. Well, the thing is you get your inheritance when your dad dies. Now, the father could have clipped him over the ears and said, that's a very, very rude a nasty attitude young man get back where you belong but this was a father that was unwilling to trap a son in a relationship where he felt he could never have a real life till he got away from his dad so his dad said oh look i tell you what son if, if if you feel you have to have a life alienated from me i won't hold you here i won't trap you he divides his inheritance two-thirds for the eldest son one-third to his younger son and now his life is in his son's hands because there's no superannuation net, there's no government uh, social service benefits, your entire security is now in the hands of your sons. If my sons are disloyal, I have no future. I'm counting on my sons uh, honouring me as their father. But blow me down if the younger boy doesn't sell up his inheritance, packs his bags and leaves town. Takes, t takes a third of dad's superannuation fund with him. And he doesn't move to a town and set up like some kind of ministry to help people. No, he blows it all in wine, women and song. Woohoo! And then the global financial crisis hits and the boy ends up in a pigsty. In a pigsty, he begins to think about life and, and Jesus put these words in his mouth. He started to realise it wasn't so bad when I was back home with Dad. I don't know what I was thinking. Oh, I'm going to have to go home and I'm going to, I'm going to say to my Dad, and here's his version of Amazing Grace, Dad, <laughs> I'm no longer worthy to be your son, Dad. <laughs> Make me one of your hired servants, Dad. Give me a little shack out the back and a broom and a shovel and I'll work really, really hard to prove that I'm a second-class citizen, Dad. It's a miserable attitude. That's not amazing, Grace. But home he goes. And on his way home, he's wondering, I wonder where Dad will be. I bet he's in the back, in the back room. He's got his arms folded and his brows all wrinkled up and when I get home I'll have to crawl across the floor and I'll kiss dad on the foot oh dad I've been a bad boy and he might let me come home and be a second class citizen but his father wasn't sitting in the back room with his arms folded and his brow all knit he was out at the front gate watching maybe today's the day my boy will come home and then that day came and he, he said could it be Jesus said his father ran to him, picked up his skirts and running through the village. You have no idea how shocking that story is to a Jew. Wow. Eastern gentlemen don't run anywhere. Eastern gentlemen are very dignified. They walk with great dignity. Well, there is a God in heaven who can be quite undignified when lost people start coming home. He ran to him, started showering him with hugs and kisses, kissing his piggy little son. And the boy starts his miserable talk, Dad, I'm no longer worthy. He doesn't even want to hear the speech. He says, 
go and bring me the best robe we've got because he's come home and he's broken. I'm going to restore his dignity today. Bring me the, the special robe, the robe that we only use when dignitaries come. Oh, Father, I wouldn't use that robe if I was you. I mean, he's come straight from a pigsty. That's a very expensive robe. I'd get a shearer's dressing gown, you know, put that on him for a while till we clean him up. Oh, don't you bring me a shearer's dressing gown? I'm not trying to just cover him up. Today I will restore his dignity because he comes home broken and his head bowed and ashamed and today I will honour him in everybody's presence. Bring me that special robe and someone bring me a ring for his finger. Oh, Father, I wouldn't put a ring on his finger because that's a sign of authority. You put a ring on his finger, he'll start signing checks again. He's already blown a 30-year superannuation. I wouldn't let him near a ring, not for a long period of time. No, I don't have second-class citizens. He doesn't come home with no authority. I will restore his authority, put a ring on his finger and put shoes on his feet because he didn't come home as a slave and somebody killed a fatted calf oh father I wouldn't kill the fatted calf no that's a lot of meat we haven't invented refrigeration yet I mean it's only four of you it's only you and mum and two boys I mean how, how much meat can you eat why don't we kill the fatted duck <laughs> kill the fatted duck now, did you think this was just a little meal for me and mum and the two boys I want you to kill the fatted calf because I want everyone in this community to join me for a dinner tonight. I want the entire community to be as excited about his own coming as I am. Kill the fatted calf. Jesus told three stories with one intent in mind that you might understand the thrill in the heart of God when people have a strategy to find lost people. Well, I could spend the whole morning just on those three parables because they're worth it. But I want to deal with the next one. Because once he told those three parables, and he told those three parables to everybody who was listening, but the focus of his attention were the scribes and the Pharisees. They didn't understand God's passion for lost people. But now he turns to his own disciples, just like I'm now about to turn to you. Because the very next parable in Luke chapter 16 the Bible says now Jesus told this parable to his disciples. Once he'd explained to everybody the passion God has for finding lost things, he now turns to his own followers and says, now if you understand God's passion for lost people, I've now got something to say to you. There's something you have to understand. Now Jesus said this to his disciples. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, Well, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Oh, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, oh, take your bill, mate. Sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Oh, he said, take your bill and, 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 and let's make it 800. 
the master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of light. And I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Because whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, and you cannot, for you cannot serve both God and mammon. And the Pharisees got the point so quickly. Listen to the very next verse. The Pharisees who loved their money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. As a result, he tells the fifth parable, you're lucky I'm not going to share that one with you because that's the rich man and Lazarus. I'm going to share this one with you. I want to share with you the parable of the tricky steward because once you understand the passion God has for lost people, You've got to understand it's not just about prayer. You've got to understand it's not just about worship. You've got to understand it's not even just about witnessing. It's about how we handle the window of opportunity that our wealth puts in our hands to influence the way people see God. You see, one of the most important insights that we could ever have is to appreciate the fact that uh, Jesus has something to say to his disciples and it's summed up in this word there was a rich man who had a manager he had a steward do you realize that every one of you who follow Jesus are managers for God you are stewards for God it's an amazing thing the idea of being a manager or being a steward Somebody else owns the stuff, but you put the responsibility to manage it in someone else's hand. That's an extraordinary privilege to be a manager. Um, the, the reality is that you'll find stewards all over the place. Every time I fly on an aeroplane, the first person you meet coming in the plane is a steward. Now, they don't own the plane. They just help you to find your seat, help to make the flight work. Managers or stewards will often have a lot more authority though than an airline steward might have. You see, managers get to make decisions on behalf of the real owner. The, of course, the, the priority of a steward is to understand what the owner wants done, to understand the priorities of the owner, to understand what's kind of the big picture in the, in the owner's mind, and then the manager gets to kind of make all the decisions. It's an amazing thing. Managers make real decisions. Managers are not like the kid in the back seat of the car sitting in a thing with a little pretend wheel on the thing with daddy's driving the car, but I'm dumb. <laughs> Those kids in the back seat can't make any real decisions. They think that. <laughs> but daddy's driving the car. And you can turn that wheel and nothing changes. But God hasn't given you a phony steering wheel. He's given you a real steering wheel. Because one of the most extraordinary privileges of life is that as we become followers of Jesus, he invites us to become stewards or managers. And while we don't actually own anything, 
He's given us a real steering wheel and invited us to manage his stuff on his behalf with his purposes in mind so that we can participate in the business. It's an extraordinary thought. <laughs> the thing, of course, though, while a, a, a true manager has real power, they are responsible, a true manager is also accountable. At some point, we've got to have a discussion about how we're doing, it, how we're doing our job. And Jesus said, here's a manager, and the owner finds out that uh, he's not doing the right thing. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Now, I'm not happy with the decisions you're making. I'm not happy with the way you're exercising the authority I've given you. So I tell you what, on Monday morning, I want the keys to the company car, I want the keys to the aeroplane, I want the keys to the boat. I want the keys to the company holiday house. And I want the accounting books on my desk on Monday morning because your stewardship is about to be terminated. Scary day. The day of accountability. The day where he has to render an account. That's not much fun. But I thought I was the owner. Don't I own anything? Listen, I own golf clubs. Well, at least I think I own them. And I can say these are my golf clubs. But if I was to die tonight, there are people I know who would go straight to my house and get my golf clubs <laughs> because they lust after my golf clubs. And I've also got a golf cart. See, I've got an electric golf cart, a golden golf cart. It's an extraordinary golf cart with the clubs on it. But if I was to die tonight, people will go to my house and take out my golf cart and my golf clubs and do things I would never have permitted. Because, you see, I don't really own them. I'm just in charge of them for the moment. And the proof, Jesus says, is if you think you own something, let me see you get it off the planet. Because if you... I nearly pulled my ear off. There should be rules about that. Jesus thinks that if you really think you really own something, let me see you get off the planet. Because if you die and leave, and everything you said was yours remains, and then they just break it up and give it off to other people, you discovered that you were only in charge of it for a little while. You didn't actually own a thing. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein. He's the only one that owns anything. But he has made you his steward. Now, what Jesus wanted us to realize is that, by the way, he's a great steward. He's a great owner because in our stewardship, it's not like we don't get to have anything. In fact, God says, part of my administration is for you to have an amazing life. I want you to have a good life. I want you to eat. I want you to have fun. Well, I want you to eat and have fun while you're managing my stuff with my priorities in mind. The stuff I really care about, it's got to be in your mind or, are you, or you may end up misapplying some of the power that I've put in your hand. You need to, pr to pursue my goals and my purposes with all that I put in your hand or you just might end up being 
a, a dishonest steward. Well, now the story comes. Here's this guy. He realises he's going to have to put the keys of the company car back on the table, the, the, the boat's all over the plane, the, the holiday house, the accounting books, they're all going back on the master's boat. But he said, wait, wait, that's Monday morning. It's only Friday night. I have a window of opportunity here. I'm still in charge till I put that stuff on his desk. And while I've got a window of opportunity, I'm going to make some really smart decisions. He starts phoning people up. He said, hey, excuse me, mate, look, uh, I, I know that you owe the master a lot. What, tell me, tell me, how, how much do, do you owe? Well, he says, oh, I owe this. Oh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. He said, this is your rule. It's a good weekend for you. Uh, we're going to take your bill. We're going to write it down. How do you feel about that? Oh, it's fantastic. Thank you. He's phoning up all the master's debtors all through the weekend. And by the time he puts those books down on the master's table on Monday morning, he has made himself a stack of friends. A lot of commentators don't know what to do with this parable because they say, well, how could Jesus use a, 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 a dishonest steward because of the point he wants to make? Because when the owner finds out about it, and how would the owner find out about it? He was walking down the street and someone came walking up to him, put his arms around him, gave him a kiss right on the face, said, you are just the best person to do business with I've ever met, and walked past. What's that all about? He gets to his office, there's a bunch of flowers there. Oh, thank you so much for your generosity. What's that all about? After a little while, he does a bit of investigation and he bursts out laughing. He says, you know what? I gave that manager a weekend of opportunity and he's made the most of it. He sure does know how life works because he used his window of opportunity and he made a lot of friends for himself. Jesus said, I just wish my people were that smart. Listen to what Jesus said. This is exactly what Jesus said. I wish my people were that smart. He said this, the master commended the dishonest manager because he'd been smart. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus will put the same point, he'll say the same thing in different words when he says this. Do not simply lay up treasure for yourself on earth where rust and moths and thieves do their stuff. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. There's, 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 God doesn't need your money in heaven. He doesn't even want your money. Why would he want your money? He doesn't need your money. There is only one thing that is a treasure as far as God is concerned. What do you reckon that is? People. That's the only treasure God needs from planet Earth. It's the whole reason the world exists and the universe is unfolding. God is gathering a family. How do you lay up treasure in heaven? You influence people in your window. Have you ever figured it out that your life is a window of opportunity? Right now you are alive. But the day will come you'll lay your head down for the last time. And on that day... The keys of everything, the car, the plane, the golf clubs, the house, the bank accounts, what's left of your superannuation, all of it will be divvied up by other people and passed around. You will leave, it will remain behind and your window of opportunity will close. Life is probation. Life is an opportunity 
to be with God, a partner, a manager, a steward, and partner with God in packing heaven with treasure. And there's only one treasure God has the remotest interest in, and that is people. He can manufacture stuff by the word of his mouth. What he can't manufacture is people. People have to be generated. They are generated. They're not manufactured. He could make gold or silver. Jesus demonstrated he can multiply bread, he can multiply wine, and he can multiply fish. But human beings must be generated and then won, purchased by the grace of God. He's asking you, to take the window of opportunity that your life represents and partner with him. And he's not a weird owner. He, he doesn't expect you to live in poverty. He doesn't expect you to struggle, to have nothing. He says, go ahead, eat plenty of donuts, have a great life, enjoy a steak or two, have a holiday. But remember my highest priority. Just remember my highest priority. Because the bottom line is that you are my stewards and I have put my stuff in your hand and I'm asking you to manage it with my priorities in your mind. Um, here are some conclusions Jesus would love you to understand. Use your worldly wealth to win friends. Now, Jesus said to win friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He's saying win people, win people so that when you end up in eternity, you won't be standing there alone saying, I wish I'd, I wish I'd done this differently. I wish I'd actually touched people's lives. He said, touch people. And one day, uh, you will be walking through heaven. I know I will be. I know I will be. I will never forget one of the most significant moments in our church's history. And I need to say this to you prophetically. What you are engaged in right now is a prophetic encounter. A dream that began nine years ago is right now in its moment of fruition. Many years ago, as I was leading a church in Mount Evelyn, we wanted to buy land next door. Um, there were reasons for buying the land. One was because it was available. And we thought, well, if we had got by it now, you know, no one else would be able to build on it and build the church out and make it look, you know, make it hard to, to manage it. We're, we're going to buy the land. So we, for weeks, we were visioning buying the land. Uh, we, it was a lemon farm. We had people running through the lemon farms. We had people singing songs about the lemon farms. Open wide these doors. The very week that we were about to come to our offering, God uh, broke our hearts for our friends in Indonesia because their churches were being burned down, their homes were being burned down, they were being murdered. And I had an email from a friend in Indonesia to say that more than 800 Christians from a local community were hiding on the top of a mountain in fear for their lives, walking a one and a half kilometres just to get water, living like cattle in a great big shed, 800 of them. We had a night of fasting and prayer four days before we took out that big offering. Next morning, um, a guy rang me up and he said, Pastor, I just felt yesterday that as I was preparing for our offering, God put it on my heart that maybe I should give my offering to Indonesia. What do you think about that? And I said, I will never mess with God. If God put that on your heart, don't ask me for a second opinion. Then God started to mess with my heart. And I began to realise that uh, maybe he was saying to more than just him about our friends in Indonesia. 
And so on Friday, I started to ask our staff, what if we gave half the money away to Indonesia on Sunday? And they said, oh, well, maybe. Then I came to a group of businessmen on the Saturday morning. They were preparing uh, to pray for that great offering on the Sunday because we were going to buy the land and the businessmen were going to pay it off. And so they were really interested in seeing a big offering so they didn't have that much to pay off. And I got up there and I said, you know, I got up early this morning to pray and God gave me a picture uh, as I was reading my Bible of uh, Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac. And as I was reading the story, I thought, how do you sacrifice half of Isaac? And it dawned on me, flip, you either sacrifice Isaac or you don't. You know, you're calling this coming offering your generation's offering. We were calling it an offering for the future, for the future kids. And in the name of Jesus, um, I started to get the feeling God wanted us to dedicate that, not to our kids in our case, but to kids who are desperate right here and right now. I called my eldership. To, one of the hardest days of prayer I've ever had was to get down on my knees all day long and I felt Jesus breathing, just breathing this on my spirit. Alan, every day in Indonesia, my people are crying. They're saying, help us, help us. And Al, I need you to be that help because you're my manager. You're my steward. And I need you to be the source of that supply. I just bawled like a baby, said, Jesus, you can have anything you want. But I couldn't make that, lesson, that, that decision alone. I called my elders together. I told them what I felt the Lord was saying. And every man around that table said, this is a God moment. This is a God moment. We need to respond with a God-filled heart. The next morning I preached a message no one expected to hear, that God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And today we are being called to sacrifice for a generation that is not our own people. We're being called to, to sacrifice for other people's children, for other people's children. I never saw men sob uncontrollably in church until that day. There were men who sobbed and could not stop. We took up the largest offering we'd ever taken, $270,000 on one Sunday, and we gave it away to other people's children. A month later, the council um, moved a motion to say that we were not permitted to join that land with our land, so I saved myself an embarrassment. Because if I'd pressed ahead and bought the land, the council said, you can't use it anyway, well, then I would have looked really stupid. So I looked amazing. I looked absolutely amazing. <laughs> I, I looked prophetic. No, I wasn't prophetic. I was just obedient. I just did what I, I knew Jesus was asking a couple of years later I was in Indonesia and some people came up to be introduced to me and they said pastor these are some of the people who were in that village they cried because that gift triggered a million dollar gift from the United States and they put the two together and they bought a mountain in a safe place of the country and relocated all of those men women and children out of that dangerous place in South Sulawesi to a safe place where they could flourish. I want to tell you to look in the eyes of someone whose life they see you as the best friend you've ever had because you sacrificed for my children. They weren't your children. 
They were our children and you sacrificed for them. Um, one day, uh, it is my prayer, every single one of you who will have handed back your account books and left planet Earth and find yourself in the presence of the Lord will meet people who will come up to you and say, you don't know who I am, but you changed my life. I came to know Jesus because of something you gave, something you did, some sacrifice you made. I just want to say thank you. So this morning, uh, I bring a challenge to you and I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to do it. Jesus thinks that if you understand that you have a window of opportunity, that you need to use some of your worldly wealth to influence lost people. You know why I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to preach this message? Because I've, I've led a church, led a church like this, that had a vision that went beyond itself. A dream began over nine years ago that in this community there could be a Sprouts Early Learning Development Centre. My friend Graham Nelson in Melbourne has had exactly the same dream and you cannot know what it is doing for their church because we live in a, at a time where mothers and fathers, just both of them have to go to work to pay a mortgage. That wasn't true in my father's day. It, be, it was becoming true as I was getting older. But today it's hard for people to have a home and have a mum that can stay home, someone who can devote themselves to mothering. People have to work. But what do you do with your children? My friend Graham Nelson got this vision about probably about the same time you did because he, he's had this same recognition. We are in a community where more and more mothers and fathers who don't go to church are wondering how can I earn enough to pay the mortgage and raise a family and who will take care of my three-year-old? Who will take care of my four-year-old? One day they'll go to school, they get to, they get to six, they go to school. But who will take care of my five-year-old? He said, um, we built an early learning development centre and it's filled with people who would never think of going to church. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional people's families get. If you bless their children, they will love you for the rest of their life. And when they begin, because your children, those little children, begin to make relationships amongst trusted people who serve them in the life of this church, when they start hearing about Sunday school and they start hearing about children's ministry, as they begin to grow, this is the place that they will feel most naturally connected and there'll come a day when a mum who walked in here pushing a pram with a, with a child that needed to be taken care of while she earned, did her few hours and did, uh, did her work to help make the family budget balance. But she came in walking with a three-year-old and a five-year-old. One day you'll find a big buffy man standing alongside that woman coming through the door with three little children on a Sunday morning because... You influenced their heart. You made them know that they were valued. You made them know there are some people in this community you could actually trust who sacrifice to make themselves a servant 
of Jesus in a lost and a broken world. I've had the privilege of looking in the eyeballs of people who were the recipient of our stewardship. This morning, I say to you, Jesus just has some final words. Listen to them. Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. <clears throat> this is one more step of you becoming a community of believers to whom God can entrust the most precious commodity on the face of the earth, lost people. No one can serve two masters. Jesus says you've got to decide whose steward you are. Are you stewarding for a world that thinks there can never be enough? You can never have enough. You can never do enough. Or are you stewarding for a master who says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost? Decide who you're going to serve. And over these coming weeks, you'll have an opportunity to say to God, as a community, we deeply desire to be trustworthy and honourable stewards, honourable managers of your stuff. I believe what you are launching into here is one of the greatest keys for a community to touch its, its, its own city. Last thing I'll say. Last year I was with Bruce Hills in Thailand. They gathered missionaries from all over the world. One of the most fascinating common threads that came through from community after community, that God had given them a strategy for touching the community where they were. Serve the children. Because when you serve the children, it doesn't matter whether you're in uh, French Polynesia or you're in um, Zambia or whether you're in Mumbai. Parents love their kids. And when a community of people make a safe place for their children, you become people they can love and people that they can trust. I commend to you your early learning, your early learning centre. I commend to you the project that you have to take care of Sprouts. And I encourage you over these next days, say to God, give me a share in this glorious venture. One day you will meet people who will say, you don't know who I am, but I am one of those who came because of you. Father, I pray over my friends today. I pray your blessing over this house. I pray your blessing over this venture. I thank you for people who have enough compassion and enough guts to do something so bold as to invest for children who are not just their own, but the children of this community. I pray through this avenue, make yourself famous in Shell Harbour, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. It's a privilege to talk to you. And I pray that I'll hear great stories in Jesus' name.